Scripture reading this morning is going to be Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. I should tell you up front, it's going to actually take us two weeks to get through these four verses. So don't be alarmed. But Hebrews chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. If you're using one of the Pew Bibles, you will find these verses on page 1000. One, let's give our careful attention to the reading of God's Word. Hebrews chapter 2, beginning with verse 1. Therefore, we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? It was declared at first by the Lord, and it was attested to us by those who heard, while God also bore witness by signs and wonders and various miracles, and by gifts of the Holy Spirit distributed according to His will. That is the reading of God's Word. Let us pray and ask for His blessing upon the preaching of His Word here this morning. Father, as we come to Your Word, we we pray for Your Spirit. We pray that the same Spirit who inspired the author to write these words would now be at work in and through this Word, renewing our minds, sanctifying our hearts, and equipping us for every good work that you have prepared for us to do. Father, we pray this for the sake of your Son's name and for his glory. Amen. I wonder how you respond to warnings. In these verses, we have the first of what will be a series of warnings throughout the book of Hebrews 6 in all. Here, the author warns his readers not to drift from the gospel, asking how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation. Next, the author will warn his readers to take care lest there be in them an evil and unbelieving heart, leading them to fall away from the living God. Third, the author will warn his readers simply not to fall away, warning them that it is impossible to restore to repentance those who have been enlightened, having tasted the heavenly gift and having shared in the power of the Holy Spirit, if they fall away. Fourth, the author will warn his readers not to go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, telling them that that. If you go on sinning deliberately, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but only a fearful expectation of judgment. Fifth, the author will warn his readers not to allow a root of bitterness to keep them from obtaining the grace of God. And finally, at the end of this letter, the author will warn his readers not to refuse him who is speaking. Saying that if they did not escape who refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape 
if we reject him who warns from heaven. Six warnings, six sober warnings, six weighty warnings that we have in this book. The first one here in the text before us this morning. I wonder, how do you respond to such warnings? Obviously, it will take us some time to look at each of these in detail as we work our way verse by verse through this letter. But as we, as we take up the first one this morning, I want you to simply ask yourself, how do I respond to warnings? If you know some of the stories from my childhood, it will probably not surprise you to know that my default response to warnings is usually to ignore them. I usually don't take them all that Seriously, I think that that's the product of the age we live in to a certain extent. We have been bombarded by so many warnings, so many of them downright silly, that we have become conditioned to, to think that, that warnings are these unnecessary annoyances designed to protect lawyers' clients rather than us. And so we don't tend to hear warnings as fatherly instruction designed to keep us out of real trouble. And unfortunately, I think many Christians respond not only to the warning on their coffee cup this way, but they, they respond to all the warnings even in Scripture this way. We, we dismiss them. Maybe, maybe we don't regard them as unnecessary, but we just think they're for somebody else. Somebody else needs to hear that. Somebody else needs to, to heed that. Someone else needs to, to pay attention. It doesn't really apply me. Now, I know that's not true for all of us. I know that there are, are some of us, because of the, the, the background that we grew up in, who are, who are terrified by the warnings of, of Scripture. That, that they are often left helpless by these warnings. But in my experience, there are many more who remain entirely unaffected by them. As we look at these warnings, I want us to be on guard, a warning in itself, against either reaction. I do not want us to be left hopeless by these warnings. But nor do I want us to assume that they must be for someone else. But rather, I want us to hear these warnings, and, and this warning in particular this morning. I want us to hear this warning as God's fatherly instruction, as his fatherly word to us, designed to keep us out of real trouble. Because that's what these warnings are. This is God's word to his people. A warning that, that points out a real danger and calls us to be on guard that we might go in a different direction. The first thing that we see here in this warning before us this morning is the possibility of drifting. This is implied, I think, in the warning itself. The, the author is warning the Hebrews to work against drifting, to, to be on guard against drifting, because he knows that, that drifting is a very real possibility. The second thing we see is, is not only that the drifting is possible, but we see that drifting is dangerous. 
We see this in the, the comparison that the author draws between the consequences of, of transgressing that message which was declared by angels and neglecting the great salvation that has been spoken by the Lord Himself. So we see the possibility of drifting. We see the danger of drifting. And finally, we see our hope. We see our defense against drifting. If drifting is a real possibility, and if drifting is a, is a serious danger, we need to know how to avoid it. And that is exactly what the author sets before us in his charge when he says, we must pay closer attention. If we would avoid drifting, we must pay much closer attention to the things that we have heard. And so this morning I want us to, to consider each of these three points in greater detail. The, the possibility of drifting, the, the danger of drifting, and then finally, our defense against drifting. So let's begin with the possibility of drifting. The author writes, therefore we must pay much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. As I said, the the warning itself implies the real possibility. But, but what does it mean? What does it mean to drift from that which we have heard? As you can guess, drifting is a, is a nautical metaphor. It, it, it might describe a ship whose anchor has come loose and is, and is now simply drifting on the sea. Being pushed this way and that by the, by the wind or the waves. Or it might describe a ship that is making its way across the sea, but has begun to drift off course. So it is no longer headed towards its intended definition. It is, it is possible, impossible to know for certain which image the author had in mind, but really either works. Think about it. What is it that the Hebrews had heard? What is it that they are being warned not to drift from? What they had heard is the gospel of Jesus Christ. What they had heard was the, the good news that the crucified and, and risen Son who had given His life as a ransom for many had now been given the name above every name, had now been seated at the right hand of God, and that in Him, the crucified and risen Lord, the promised kingdom of God had dawned. The promised kingdom of, of righteousness and peace, the, the, the kingdom for which God's people had longed for so long. That kingdom had come in Jesus Christ. It's it's. Advent had, had been unveiled. And they knew that one day He would come again to establish that kingdom in full on earth, even as it is now in heaven. And He would do this to the blessing of all who took refuge in Him. To all who had believed in Him and trusted in His blood for the cleansing of their sins. This is the gospel. This is the good news of, of Jesus Christ. That we who are rebels justly condemned can be reconciled to the Father and made heirs of the coming kingdom through the blood of the Son shed for us. This is the gospel that they had heard. And throughout the New Testament, this gospel is described as both a foundation 
upon which we must stand and, and not be moved, and as a way in which we must walk. So if the gospel is both a foundation and a way, either image of drifting works. Drifting might be that our anchor has, has come loose and we have been moved off of that solid foundation where we were called to stand. Or drifting might mean that, that we have begun to deviate from the path. We have, we have got off course. We are no longer headed towards our intended destination. But either way, the, the reality is essentially the same. Drifting means that we have forgotten or even forsaken the gospel. It means that we have begun to live as if the gospel were not true. Francis Schaeffer once said that the Christian life form is living as if what we profess on Sunday morning is actually true. That's, how, that's what it is to, to live as a disciple. It's to, to live as if our confession of faith were actually true. That, that the things we say with our mouths when we're in worship are actually true. And drifting is just the opposite. Drifting is living as if our confession were mere words. And that is exactly what the Hebrews were being tempted to do. They were being tempted to look for alternative saviors as if Jesus were somehow inadequate. They were being tempted to find refuge and security apart from Jesus as if He could not protect them. They were being tempted to look elsewhere to secure their well-being as if He could not secure their good. And as we saw last Sunday, this is something that all Christians, not, not just the Hebrews in the first century, but this is something that all Christians in, in every generation, in every place, must face. Sometimes when, when persecution or when, when suffering is, is more intense, the, the temptation seems stronger. But all of us, even in the midst of relative security, even in the, the midst of, of relative peace, sometimes because of security and peace. All of us face the pressure to drift. <coughs> to look elsewhere for our life. To look elsewhere for our happiness. Now we may never consider the possibility of, of consciously rejecting Jesus, though of course some do. Some knowingly renounce their, their previously professed faith. I, I have known those who, who were once members in good standing of Christ's church who later renounced that faith and walked away from Jesus. But often, drifting is more subtle. We don't consciously reject Jesus. We just don't trust Him anymore. We don't consciously reject Jesus. We just don't entrust ourselves to Him anymore. Instead, we begin to look to alternative saviors. We begin to rely upon other securities. We begin to hide 
and other refuges. Such drifting is real. It is a real possibility. It's a real possibility for, for all of us. In fact, it is possible to drift so far that we are completely cut off and separated from Christ. Now that doesn't mean that a person can lose his or her salvation. We believe that the Scriptures teach the, the perseverance of the saints. As, as Paul says in Romans chapter 8, there is nothing in this world, spiritual or otherwise, that can separate us from the love of God in Christ. Jesus Himself said with absolute assurance that He would lose none of those who were given to Him by the Father. Those whom He justifies, He will surely glorify. But remember, Jesus also talks about those who initially receive the gospel with great joy. Those who initially give every appearance of being born again, but who eventually fall away and prove unfruitful. It's the image we get in the parable of the sower. Paul describes something similar in his letter to the Galatians when he talks about the, the possibility of what he calls vain faith. Have you believed in vain? And James also talks about a faith that doesn't save because it produces no works. Now John tells us in his first letter that those who, who drift away were never really of us. He says, if they had been of us, they would have remained with us. But because they separated from us, it proves they were not of us. But, but we should not miss the fact that professing believers who initially give every appearance of being born again can drift. Can drift away sometimes even forever. And therefore, we, as the people of God this morning, need to regard this as a real warning. We need to regard drifting as a real danger to be resisted and avoided. We must not think presumptuously, well, that could never happen to us because after all, what's saved, always saved. To read this text that way would be to miss the point, would be to, to set aside the fatherly instruction that, that God has for us this morning. No, we must hear this as an earnest call to stand firm, to remain unmoved from the hope of the gospel that we believed at first. And all the more when we consider the, the dangers of drifting. We, we see those dangers spelled out for us in verses 2 and 3. Notice what the author writes. He says, For since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just, a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? The other is clearly making a comparison. It's, a, it's an argument from the, the lesser to the greater. He is saying, if this is true, how much more must this be true? And the lesser truth that he is pointing to is the Old Testament law. The law given through angels to Moses at Mount Sinai. This is literally the word 
that was declared through angels. And the other says that this word proved reliable. Now that word translated reliable, again, it, it, ha it has a, a, a variety of possible meanings. It might mean reliable as a foundation. A foundation can be reliable. Or it might be reliable as a, as a way. That is, it, it might mean that the law provided that solid rock upon which the people were to stand. Or it might mean that the, that the law provided the directions that they were to follow. And again, either way, the, the image and the, and the basic meaning is, is clear. In the Old Testament, the Mosaic law was that from which the people of God were not to drift. It was the foundation upon which they were to stand. And it was the way that they were to follow. We, we see this in the Lord's instructions to, to Joshua as he about to enter the, the promised land. He says to Joshua, Be strong and courageous, being careful to do according to all the law that Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn from it to the right hand or to the left that you may have good success wherever you go. The, the law was the way in which they were to walk. They were not to turn from it to the right or to the left. Moses had, had said something very similar at the, the end of, of Deuteronomy. The law was that foundation upon which the people were to stand. It was, it was the place from which they were not to drift. And drifting had consequences. Notice how the author puts it. He, he says, every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution. That is, when, when the people violated God's law, they were justly punished. God would not and, and could not and, and simply did not overlook their sin. He did not just sweep it under the rug. In fact, it was for their persistent transgressions and disobedience that they were finally exiled from the land all together. And the author said, if there were consequences for the people of God violating the Old Testament law, how much more? Will there be consequences if we violate the new covenant given by the Lord Himself? How much more will, will breaking this covenant lead to a just retribution? He's saying that, that there are consequences if we drift from Christ. That may strike you as, as legalistic, but it's simply the gospel. Think of what he's saying. He's saying, listen, for those who are in Christ, our sins are covered. For those who are in Christ, the, 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 the guilt that stood against us, the guilt that condemned us has been nailed to the cross. Paul says, never to be counted against us. But think of what Paul says in Galatians. If we separate ourselves from Christ and put ourselves back under the law, then Christ is of no value to us, and we will receive from God the consequences of our sin. Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law. Those who forsake Christ, whether by deliberate choice or 
And they will receive from God their just due. For there is no salvation apart from Him. Clearly then, it is no small thing to drift from Christ. It is, it is no small thing to, to place our hope elsewhere. It is, it is no small thing to seek an alternative Savior. When we follow, or when we drift from following Him, we place our lives in eternal peril. This is Paul's point in 1 Corinthians 6 when he, when he says, Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. He's telling us not to be deceived. What does he, what does he mean? <coughs> Clearly, Paul is not saying that, that anyone who ever committed any of these sins is beyond the reach of, of God's grace. We know this because in the very next sentence he says, such were some of you. People who had done these things, people who had lived in these sins were now amongst the believers at, in the church at Corinth. Paul clearly understood that the gospel could, could reach sinners in their sins. But I want you to understand that Paul does not mean either that anyone who commits these sins proves themselves to be presently a non-Christian. We know this because the scriptures are full of accounts of, of true Christians, men like David. A man described as being after God's own heart. Men like David committing serious sins. So given the full testimony of, of Scripture, Paul cannot mean that, that anyone who commits any one of these sins is, is unconverted and needs to get saved. What does he mean? I want to suggest to you that Paul is saying that people who drift from daily repentance and faith, the people who begin to, to give themselves to sin as obedient slaves rather than offering themselves as living sacrifices to their God. That such people are not saved. Such people will not inherit the kingdom. They will instead receive from God their just retribution. A Christian might sin and sin grievously and even for a time remain in his sin. But when he is convicted through the ministry of the Spirit, by the Word, or, or through God's people, someone like the prophet Nathan coming to David, when we are confronted with our sin, when we are shown our sin, then a Christian will confess, he will own his sin, he will renounce his sin, and he will turn from it back to God with the full purpose of an endeavor after new obedience. He will not give himself to sin, but rather offer himself to God as a living sacrifice. A non-Christian makes peace with his sin. He says, it's, it's no big deal. I can live with it. A Christian goes to war. When confronted with his sin, a, a non-Christian excuses and justifies. A Christian grieves and repents. Yes, Christians sin. We know that reality all too well. But we do not make peace with our sin. We do not justify our sin. We do not excuse our sin. We do not offer ourselves to sin as obedient slaves, but rather 
We go to war with our sin, confessing it for what it is and turning from it in humble reliance upon God's grace, endeavoring to go in a new direction. This is the life of not drifting. The life of daily repentance and faith. Drifting is when we begin to set these practices aside, when we begin not to live in daily repentance. And Paul says that that becomes not just the, 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 the failure of a day or two, or of a, of a time, but if that becomes the, the tenor of your life, then you need to ask yourself whether you are truly a Christian. If you live without repentance and faith, then it strongly suggests that you are not a believer. And so as believers, we need to ask ourselves, where am I? Am I living a life of daily repentance and faith? Is this my life? Am I one who offers myself a living sacrifice to God each morning? Because that's what it means not to drift. To live and to walk a life of daily repentance and faith. Trusting myself daily to my Savior Jesus Christ. Trusting His Holy Spirit to walk in a new way and trusting His blood to cleanse me of all unrighteousness. And so the question is, how? How do we actually do this? How, how do we guard against drifting? If, if drifting is a real possibility, and if drifting is so dangerous, how do we protect ourselves against it? The author tells us. Notice what he says. It's so simple. Lest we drift, what must we do? We must pay much closer attention to what we are. We don't need something new. We don't need something extra. We simply need to live in the gospel that we have heard. We need to return to it again and again and again. We need to let it dwell in us richly day after day. We need to set our minds upon it and upon the hope that is ours in Christ. We need to feed upon the gospel regularly. So how do we do this? How do we practically allow the, the word to dwell in us richly? How do we practically cling to the gospel of Jesus Christ? I, I want to suggest to you that, that our entire ministry here at Trinity is designed to facilitate you standing in the gospel. Everything we do aims at that end. We are gathered for worship even now, and this is the foundation of all that we do because as we are learning on, on Wednesday night in the men's group, what we stand in awe of shapes our lives. And you will, you will follow after Christ and you will entrust yourself to Him the more you see His glory the more you behold Him in His wonder, the more you taste and see His goodness. And so we, we gather for worship. Not so that we can check off a box, not so that, that God will be impressed with us, but that so we will be impressed with Him so that we will remember the wonder of who He is for us in Christ. We gather to behold 
His glory. But not only do we gather to behold His glory, the wonder of who He is for us in Christ, we, we also seek to, to, to sit under the teaching of His Word. And so worship is, is tied together with, with teaching, whether that be in Sunday school, or whether that be on, on Wednesday night, or whether that be in one of the Bible studies that takes place throughout the week. We seek to, to learn the whole counsel of God. We seek to be filled with His Word. That we might know the truth of who He is and who He is for us. Because it is as that Word dwells in us, it is as our minds are renewed, that we will be daily led into repentance and faith. And of course, we do all of this in the context of shared lives. In, in fellowship with one another. Not simply hanging out together. But being together in true Christian fellowship, as iron sharpens iron, as we seek to build one another up, as we seek to, seek to spur one another on to love and good works. We need one another. We need fellowship with one another, that we might let this word dwell in us richly, that we might pay close attention to what we've heard, that we might not drift from it. Of course, the, the ministry of the, the church is, is facilitated and, and supplemented by your own personal devotions. You do each of these together uh, with other believers, but you do them all so on your own. You have your own personal worship as you, as you come before God to praise Him. You have your own personal Bible study as you read the Bible for yourself. You have your own personal encouragement as you meditate upon what you've heard. But your personal devotions are not enough. God has never called us to be Lone Ranger Christians. He places us in community. He puts us in His church. And He says, together, as the people of God, as you worship together, as you devote yourself to the apostles' teaching, as you break bread together, as you encourage one another together, you will be strengthened. And you will be enabled not to drift. Because as you gather together as the church, it is as the church that you pay much closer attention to what you have heard. So the challenge before you this morning is fairly straightforward. It's fairly simple. You, you, you are called upon to ask yourself, am I paying attention? Is this, is this my focus? Is this where I find my life? Of course, none of us do it perfectly here and now. We get distracted. It's one of the reasons we need to be with other believers. When we're distracted, maybe our neighbor won't be and they can call us back. But none of us does this perfectly. We all drift from time to, to time and we need to be called back. We, we need our brothers to, to come after us. Those who are spiritual need to, to seek us and to restore us. That is the daily rhythm of life in a church. But if you haven't paid attention for quite some time, if, if being here is simply going through the motions, if this gospel doesn't shape your, your mind or your, or your life, then you need to ask yourself, have I drifted from Christ? Because if you have, you are in eternal peril. And you need to repent and return to Him, maybe for the first time, maybe for the thousandth time, it really doesn't matter as long as you do it today. Today, 
Repent and return to Him. Cling to Him as your Savior. Rest upon Him as the one who has life in Himself. Entrust yourself to Him as the only one who can secure your eternal good. Because if you do, remember the promise of the psalmist. Blessed are those who take refuge in Him. And because all who call upon His name will be saved. That is why we call this good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together. Father God, we rejoice in Your goodness to us. Father, may we not presumptuously dismiss your fatherly warning, but may we hear it, not to be crushed by it, but to be called back to faithfulness, to be called back to that daily repentance and faith that you say leads to life. Father, may each one here be spurred on to love and good works by their neighbors, by the glory that they see in our worship, and by the truth that they hear in our teaching. And together may our ministry, Father, accomplish its purpose of producing mature disciples who follow your Son, not perfectly, but faithfully, day by day by day. Father, may you do this by your Spirit, through your power, by your Word. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.